Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that your love never runs out, never gives up. God, we, we know we were broken and you made us whole. We were lost and you found us. We were separated and you, you brought us back to be reconciled with you again. And Father, our hearts are just filled with joy and thanksgiving and adoration for you. Thank you, God. Thank you for the Son whose sacrifice made us yours. For it's in his name that we pray and amen. Our uh, scripture reading this morning uh, there'll be the lesson from the, for the hour will be Romans chapter 16. I invite you to follow along. Paul is writing to a church he's never been to, but he knows about and cares about. He says to them in the close of this letter, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend, Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend, Stachus, greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and other, the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they have deceived the minds of naive people. Everyone's heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, 
as do Lucius, Jason, and Susipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cordus send you their greetings. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ. In keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. And bless the one who is going to bring a message from that word. Uh, Dan, would you come up? Dan Bouchelle is with us again. Dan's spoken to us before, and we're, we're honored, and I know you'll be blessed to have him with us again today. Dan is, and I didn't even ask you what the name of the, the, the head guy. President. The what? President. He is the president of the Mission Resource Network, and he and that group uh, do a wonderful ministry, blessing churches and missions all around the world. And... Uh, Dan is uh, a truly a great, great servant of, of our King, and we're blessed to have him here with us today uh, to share with us the Word of God. And I want to pray with you and pray for you, Dan. Father, we thank you that you've brought Dan to be with us this morning. Uh, we thank you for the heart that he has for you and for the deep knowledge that he has of your Word and your will. And Lord, we just pray this morning that you will bless him with a gift of preaching. Fill him with your spirit. Enable him to, uh, to clearly and powerfully communicate your word and your will to us. And, and Father, I pray that you give each of us ears to hear and hearts to receive what Dan has to say. And do it all, Father, for your glory. For it's in the name of your precious Son and our Savior, Jesus, we pray, and amen. Well, you know, I know the Apostle Paul said all Scripture is God-breathed and useful, but some seem more so than others, right? I mean, come on, that Scripture reading, I was watching you. There was nobody sitting on the edge of their chair, nobody elbowing anybody next to them going, oh, I love that passage. That just speaks to me. I'm so excited. I can't wait to hear what he's going to say about that. that. That's not how we feel about a list of names, is it? Honestly, let's tell the truth. That's one of the more boring chapters in the Bible. We kind of wish we could edit these things out. They do seem almost worse than useless, don't they? These chapters that just seem to be laundry lists, something like you'd take to Walmart, kind of check this off, check this off. Who's this? I don't even know. Do you know these people? It's like reading the genealogies in the Old Testament and the Old Testament laws. And you're thinking, why am I reading this? I don't even know what it means. I wouldn't know what to do with it. Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. What am I supposed to do with that? You know, don't wear linen and wool at the same time. I don't know. Well, it's kind of like that. What am I supposed to do with this? It just makes it harder to read through the Bible in a year. And if you're one of those people that has an annual reading plan to get through the Bible, chronological Bible, annual Bible, whatever, you come to a chapter you're like this, it's like, can I just skip ahead? I've read this before. It doesn't do anything for me. Reader's Digest would take it out. Who's going to leave this in? 
We don't really know anything about these people, do we? Can't even pronounce their names. Do you know whether Keith pronounced those names correctly? No, you do not. You have no idea. Nobody has any idea. Is it Sosipater, Sosipater, Sosipatater, Sopapatois? What? I don't know. Nobody knows. It wasn't recorded. We can look it on a piece of paper. We have no idea. I'm sure it didn't sound like any way that we pronounce it. We don't know these people except, well, I mean, there's Priscilla and Aquila. We recognize them from Acts with their tent ministry and their tuition-free Bible school. Okay, I know who they are. But these other people, who are they? Junius, she makes me really nervous. A woman called an apostle just dropped in out of the blue with that explanation. Do we really need that? That's going to cause trouble. We're going to have fights about that. Ampliatus, sounds like maybe he's missing a limb. Urbanus probably lived in a city. Aristobulus sounds snooty. I don't like him already. And then Tryphena, Tryphosa, Tryphena, Tryphosa. I'm guessing the mother was indecisive there. I don't know. And then you have Hermas and Hermes. Did everybody in Rome get those two guys confused? I wonder, was Flingon a Klingon? Did Asyncritus walk with a limp? I bet Philologus never shut up, and Olympus was probably an athlete. I don't even want to talk about Gaius. Let's just move along. And then there's Erastus. The guy sounds like a rascal. He's the director of public works. I don't trust him. I think he's probably taking money under the table. And then to top it all off, Paul tells this collection of oddballs are supposed to kiss each other, and that's where I'm just like, this whole thing just really makes me uncomfortable. I don't really want to kiss anybody at church, if you ask me, and I don't, I don't know what all of this is going on. But here's the thing, as remote as this sounds, as foreign as these people sound, as hard as it is to imagine their lives and anything about them, and as much as we want to skip over this chapter and get to something that speaks to us, I'm guessing that if you were a member of this little mission church in Rome, this would be your favorite chapter in the whole letter. You might get lost in some of the long, deep theological sections in Romans where he's explaining how the cross works or where he's talking about how we're all children of Abraham by faith and he's talking about the difference between faith versus law or he's over in chapter 5 and he's talking about how we all died in Adam and we're now reborn in the new Adam which is Jesus and explaining all this stuff or you get over to chapter 7 and he's trying to explain how obedience still works within a faith system and he talks about I don't do what I want to do but what I do I don't want to do and I don't want to be what I want to do and dooby 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 do you know kind of the Frank Sinatra section there of, of chapter 7 you could just get totally lost in all of that And like, oh, you might be tempted to fall asleep if you were in that original church that first heard that. But when Paul got to the section where he started calling out the names of people in your church, you would have perked up. You would have said, wow, Paul's naming names. Is he going to mention me? Who else is he going to name? He sure knows a lot of us. Paul's never been here. He doesn't have a relationship with his church, I didn't think. But my goodness, he knows her and he knows him. And if you knew these people listed here and you worship with them every week and they were your community of meaning and you suffered the disdain that they suffered because you joined this weird cult with them and if you got kicked out of your professional guild because you wouldn't burn incense to Caesar and call him Lord along with the rest of these people and now you couldn't get work or when you could, you couldn't charge full price because you're not bonded as a professional anymore in your association 
and you struggled with them and went through these difficult times with them and you gathered on the weekends and you worshiped together and found strength with them, these people would be precious to you and important to you and you would love them. And if Paul knew some of these people, well, you felt like you knew Paul. And hearing those greetings might make you pay a little bit better attention next time the letter was read when he got into the deep water because you feel like Paul's talking to us. He knows some of us. I know this guy. He's connected to these people that matter to me. And you see, all of this is really important. And I'm so deeply thankful for this chapter, even though you have to dig a little bit deeper maybe to find the meaning in it, because this chapter reminds me of what's really going on in the letter to Romans. And it's easy to lose that when you just stick that document in with 65 other documents and call it the Bible and act like it's one book. And, and you can kind of forget the story and what's happening. Paul is writing to a missionary church, a new, young, emerging congregation. He's never been there. He doesn't have a relationship with them except with a few people there. And he's on his way to Spain, and he wants to stop over in Rome, and he's got enough money to get to Rome, but he doesn't have enough money to get to Spain. And he's hoping they're going to host him, and he wants to do some teaching while he's there and help them mature, and then he wants them to fund him to go over and start a new mission work over in Spain. And so this is kind of his introduction. Here's who I am. Here's what I teach. Here's what needs to happen. Please help me go to Spain. This is the longest and strangest missionary request letter of all time. Paul is not writing systematic theologies like, you know what we need? We need a book to explain how the gospel works. And so I'm just going to sit down and write a letter to this church and just kind of lay out a document for all the church for all time. No, no, no. Paul is writing very practical teaching to flesh and blood disciples of Jesus in a specific church wrestling with some really hard questions. And a lot of the questions they're wrestling with are racial and ethnic tensions within the church. How can the church be both Jew and Gentile? And how's that going to work? And do the Jews have an advantage or do they even belong anymore? Has God abandoned the Jewish people? And if he abandoned them, is he going to abandon us? And they're, they're struggling. And the church is having a hard time holding together. And if the church in Rome breaks apart over racial and ethnic lines, that could ripple out throughout the kingdom. This is really strategically important. And everything he said is about helping this church love each other and stay together and be one congregation. And then hopefully they can be a foundation for really important things other places. And and so he's trying to remind them of the personal relationships and how personally connected they all are. And, And Paul's greetings and lists of names here at the end are really important reminders to us. That in all of our endless discussions about doctrines and theology and church issues that divide us to separate us or cause us to argue, and most of which are so far removed from any of our day-to-day life and walk with God, Paul's letter reminds us that ultimately when you bring it all down at the end, God's work is always very simply about people. It's about people. The church is not an institution. The church is not about a a list of programs to fund and run. It's about people, people to love, people with names and stories that need to be dealt with one by one. And thinking of the church as we do here in America and in the Western countries, thinking about the church as an abstract organization is a terrible distortion 
that causes us all kinds of problems because the kingdom of God is not about a group of ideas and it's not about institutions. It's about people that God loves, people that God wants back, people that God has put in our care. And we really need to hear this in America because the American church is so preoccupied with institutionalism, institutional concerns, programs, solutions. We think institutionally. And those of us who are committed to church and saving the church and perfecting the church and causing the church to grow, we lose sight of what it's about. We think of church in institutional forms and we want to get it right. We want to do church right. We want the church to be successful. We want to improve the church, make the church grow, and we're preoccupied with how many, how big, how effective. We want to figure out how it's doing, and so we count. Now, what we count may not count that much, but we count what we can because that's all we know how to do. We know how to count, but we don't really know how to measure. And we're not really sure what it means when the numbers come in. But we want to feel successful and we want to go to a church that's a winner because Americans believe in being winners. And we want to go to a church that makes us look like a winner and feel like a winner because who wants to go to a loser? We want to feel successful. We're concerned about trends and how the church is doing and our culture. We're trying really hard to turn the corner and get the church to look better within the culture and reach more people because we we want to save the church for Jesus so that when he comes back, we can deliver it to him as a nice prize. We want to restore the church with our programs, our plans, and our preaching. And it all gets so abstract and analytical, and we get lost in the mechanics and the mathematics, and Paul will have none of it. He writes a whole letter about the work of God in the world and mentions nothing like this. And he keeps his feet on the ground, even when his head is up in the cosmic realms. And here he closes out his most challenging, his most esoteric epistle with a list of of the names of people who are following Jesus in a city that's very hostile to Christian faith and he never once mentions any church mechanics or measurements because that's not where the power is. Paul never once says, well, you know, your church uh, worship versus Bible class attendance ratio is really off. If you want to grow, you've got to address that. Paul never says, you've got a three-year negative growth trend or you're only showing a 2% increase and really given the demographics of the community that you're in, you ought to be... Nothing like that. Nothing like that. Paul talks about people. And his word reminds me that we are never commanded anywhere in Scripture to plant churches or make churches grow. We are very simply commanded to make disciples of all the nations, of all the people groups, Make disciples of Jesus. If you make disciples, you'll get churches. If you plant churches, you may not get disciples. Makes a big difference what you're shooting for. This list of names at the end of this letter reminds us that the church as a group, as an institution, as a business, shall we say, can never be collectively what it is not individually in the lives of its people. Did you know that it's entirely possible to build big churches with big crowds that have virtually no disciples of Jesus in them? And it's been done repeatedly all over the world. And it's because of the lack of transformation in the lives of church members that the gospel has lost a lot of credibility in our culture. 
and the emerging millennial generation is kind of checking out saying, honestly, we don't see where it makes a difference. The church just looks like another people-consuming business. And we don't trust it. Jesus we're impressed with. The church, not so much. But we keep trying organizational fixes. And I think Paul is trying to say to us, and the Spirit is saying to us through this letter, a better business plan is not going to fix our problem. The goal isn't to grow a great church. The goal is to extend the reign of God in the world, to draw more people into the lordship of Jesus, submitting to him as Lord, living in the ways of Jesus. Because ultimately, congregations cannot be saved. Only people can. Congregations grow for a while and then decline. That's not the point. The point is people coming to know Jesus. Congregations are like any living organism. They they birth, they grow for a while, then they kind of diminish and die. None of the none of the churches written in the New Testament are still around today. The kingdom is fine. See, it's really important that we understand this because we can't lead other people to become what we are not ourselves. One of the foundational principles of Scripture just starts in Genesis 1.1, and God creates a world where everything reproduces after its own kind. So it kind of matters what we are because that's what we're going to reproduce. And that means that my greatest point of leverage is myself, my relationship with Jesus, and then my relationships with real people who are influenced with me one at a time. If I want better kids, I need to be a better me. If I want to see a healthier community, I need to be a healthier me. If I want to see Christ come into my office place, I need to be a healthier me so that I can be the instrument that God uses to transform what's going on around me. Paul's concern is for real people, and he never mentions anywhere in this letter church events, church programs, church structures, because he knows those things don't produce the power. They provide a role. They can play a role. They're fine. There's nothing wrong with them. But that's not where the power is. And I've learned, I preached for 23 years, three different churches. I did everything I could to become as as qualified and helpful and skillful a minister as I could be. I got three graduate degrees in, in ministry, just trying to be the best preacher I could be. And it wasn't until I had been in ministry for maybe 20 years that I came to understand that I had been working on the wrong end of the problem the whole time. I had been trying to figure out how to fix the church with some kind of top-down organizational structure, and here's, if we can build the right kind of church, then we'll transform the world. But I never stopped to ask, what is the church supposed to be producing? I was like a guy building a factory and hiring a crew, a staff, and hiring jobs and lining out procedures and creating an org chart and all of this kind of stuff and never bothered to ask, what will this factory make? It's really efficient. What does it produce? I'm not really sure about that. But man, the boxes they come in look great. And I began asking the question, what is the production here. What are we trying to produce? We're trying to produce disciples of Jesus. Let's figure out what the end product is supposed to be. Then we'll figure out how we make those. And that's where real change comes from, discipling people one at a time, starting with me, and then letting God 
cause that to expand exponentially outward through a series of relationships. And if the people who make up a congregation are disciples of Jesus, you don't need an evangelism program. Disciples of Jesus are contagiously evangelistic because they're in the lives of people loving on them and serving them. That's just what disciples do. You can't be like Jesus and not do that. And if we'll stop trying to save the church as institution and just lose ourselves for the sake of real people, well, the church will just find its life. But you can't structure a solution. And as we kind of wrap this up this morning, I want to I remind you of a few critical things here that I think we need to take away from Paul's message here. And the first is this, that spiritual growth really begins with a clear vision about what God's up to in the world. And I'm going to lay something on you here that may, may be a little hard for you to take in. It, you, may, you may think I'm crazy. You, you may think I'm totally off base. And it's okay if you disagree with me because you have the right to be wrong. And I am totally comfortable with that, okay? So here's the deal. Just let the Lord play with this in your head for a while. The goal of a Christian is not to go to heaven. And thinking it is, is a real problem. The goal of the Christian isn't to go to heaven. The goal of the Christian is to become like Jesus. The goal of the church isn't to get as many people as possible to heaven. The goal of the church is to reproduce people who are like Jesus and to be like Jesus in the world. Heaven is the reward. It's not the goal. Heaven is what happens as we become more like Jesus. It's the inevitable end of people who have become like Jesus because you're going to be where Jesus is and you're going to be with Jesus. But here's the problem. If you think the goal is going to heaven, you're only going to do what's required to go to heaven. You're going to stop as soon as you think, okay, I've done what's required to go to heaven. Now everything else in my life I can do for myself. And I can be who I want to be. And I don't really have to obey that stuff. As long as I've got that, and here's the key word, salvation issues right. So we divide up the will of God into those, those things you have to be right about, those salvation issues, and then that other stuff that, you know, people who just really want to go whole hog on out of that, well, that's fine. But you've got to be right on this stuff, and then we will fight and act in completely ungodly ways all over these salvation issues while ignoring whole hosts of area of teachings of Jesus because, well, that stuff isn't really that important. That, you see... Because we're worried on what do I have to do to go to heaven. We think that's the goal. The goal is being like Jesus. And if you understand that, then submitting to the will of Jesus and embracing the way of Jesus and everything just makes sense because that's where life is. Because he's right and he's God and he's true and we want to submit to that. And if you follow that path, you don't have to worry about heaven. It's about people. It's not about issues and doctrines and organizations and structures We have to understand it's about forming people to be like Jesus. And that means names and stories. One of the great things about my life, one of the great blessings of my life, I get to work for a ministry that works around the world. And I get to travel the six populated continents of the world and just see God's work and transform people's lives and see it run through people groups with churches that multiply and all kinds of incredible stories and people and and see these kind of transformations, these before and after stories where people haven't just always kind of grown up in church and just been to church. I remember I was in Sao Paulo, Brazil a few years ago preaching for the Itaquira congregation in a 
you know, Sao Paulo is kind of a small city in Brazil of about 23 million people. And, but there's one little community and neighborhood, Itakira Congregation. There's a church there. And our church where I was preaching supported the missionaries there, had taken the gospel there. And this was a good number of years ago. And I was preaching. And it was, it was a translated sermon. They were suffering through being translated from English to Portuguese. And I felt sorry for these poor people. I don't even know how to talk to them. And yet they were sitting on the edge of their seat. They were so energetic. They were so excited. And afterwards, they just came up, and like Brazilians do, they just wanted to touch me and hug me and kiss me, and this making me really uncomfortable as, you know, this kind of real stiff American white guy. And, and, and this one couple came up, and they are precious people, Fabio and Simone. And you would love Fabio. He is just fabulous. He is just dressed in this European tailored suit with the skinny legs, and he just looks great, and he wears those kind of pointy-toed shoes that are either European or elf. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and his wife, Simone, and they're real expressive, and they're real animated, and they want to touch you, and they want to stand six inches from your face while they're talking. And, and, and Simone can't talk two or three sentences without tearing up because she's just so full of emotion and energy, and I'm just like blown away by this. They come up to me, and they say to me in broken English, thank you, thank you, thank you for sending us Jesus. You change our lives. Simone's sister was dying of cancer, but because they both knew Jesus now, she wasn't going to lose her. A few experiences like that will change your life. It's not about the Itakira congregation. It's not about Brazilian missions. It's about Fabio and Simone. Or I understand you know Charles Cabeza. Told his story in first service and then... uh, Keith told me, you know Charles. We work with Charles. The, we set up a ministry in Kigali in 2008. He's now the president of what's called Africa Transformation Network, which is what it's called over there. Charles, amazing disciple of Jesus. Incredible story. Here's a guy who lived through the genocide when a million people were killed in 100 days. His parents were dead. He and his brothers ran as far as they could, fled from the militias of the Interhamwe who were slaughtering his tribe in mass. They got a mile from the Congo border. They were trying to cross the river and get over into the Congo to a refugee camp just to survive the slaughter. And they can't get across because there's a militia patrolling the river. And so they're hiding out in a barn during the day and just trying to find food where they can, scavenging at night. And then they try at night to get across, slip by the militia, they never can. Finally, some local people spot these kids in this barn, alert the militia of Hutus who come in and kill all of his brothers. He's the only one who escaped. The rest were hacked to death with machetes. Somehow he escapes, gets across the river, over in a refugee camp in the Congo. When the war is over, and it's relatively safe, he comes back to Kigali. He finds some distant relatives who give him a place to sleep on the floor and will help get some food in his mouth, but they don't care anything about him. He graduates with honors from high school. Nobody's at his graduation. Nobody cares. He comes to know Jesus, and he starts a ministry for the refugees, for the survivors, the genocide orphans, because he said nobody should have to live life alone and unloved. And he calls it Extra Mile Ministry in honor of his brothers who couldn't make it the extra mile into the Congo. And they have, they have won so many people to Christ. Now they're hosting weddings for these people who have no families. 
to help put on weddings. That work that Charles now leads and the Rwandans who lead it along with some of the help by some of the Americans, since 2008, they've planted, as of January 1, 214 churches, some third, fourth generation church multiplications. Last year, they baptized 453 people. They had, I think it was 254 evangelistic called Discovery Bible Studies going, which are all in the process of becoming churches. It's spilling across the Congo border. It's going up into, it's going over to Tanzania. It's going down into Burundi. It's crossing over into Uganda. It's just, it's just God is doing amazing things one story at a time. Americans don't attend any of those churches, and if you visited, you wouldn't think it was church because it doesn't look anything like this. But God's changing lives. You go, yeah, that's the mission field. That's another country. That's not over here. Listen, missions isn't just Africa and Asia and Europe and Latin America. It involves us right here because North America is a mission field in Allen and Plano and McKinney. This is mission territory. You're surrounded by people every day who need Jesus. A few years ago, when I was preaching in Amarillo, we were downtown church and we were trying to go missional, talk all that big language, trying to do a big organizational fix. But it began to dawn on some of us on staff, all of our time is spent serving the believers, and we have a hard time getting out of the church to connect with people. And we had started an inner city ministry working with the homeless, and I was connected with that. But I'm like, I really need a point of contact beyond that. And, and so a couple of us just went down to an elementary school in the worst neighborhood in Amarillo, gang-infested, really, really rough Title I school and just went to the social worker and then the principal and said, can we just volunteer to be mentors to some boys that don't have any positive role models in their life? And she was like, yes, yes, how many can you bring? We said, now we're coming from a faith position. Is that okay? We don't care. We don't care. Just come help us. You know, and so we started going and I just went every Tuesday and ate lunch with a different kid and began to really form a relationship with one kid and then over the years, you know, kind of different kids would come through. But the last kid I worked with was a kid named Nason. Nason was the fourth of five kids. His dad was from Mexico, was an immigrant. He lived with his dad and his grandmother, both of whom spoke Spanish and didn't speak English. Nason could hear some Spanish, did not speak it very well. Consequently, he didn't communicate with his dad or his grandmother. His mother had abandoned the family after giving birth to five children because she decided she was a lesbian and went and ran off with another woman, and she spent most of her time in jail, and when she wasn't in jail, she was in a bar. His three older siblings were all locked up. His oldest brother had gotten arrested for violence with a gun when he was in a gang. He was 17. He had a sister who was 14 and one who was 12. The 12-year-old was pregnant, and they were both locked up. Nason was 11 years old, and he was off-the-charts intelligent, scary smart kid, all of his siblings were. His younger brother was too. But the school said, we don't want him to go down the path of his brothers and sisters. He could be different. But he could not imagine living in a world that wasn't filled with violence and drugs and gangs and prison. Stood in his yard one time and he began to point out, see that guy, that house over there? Guy who lives over there. He's a, he's a registered sex offender. That guy over there, I watched him beat his wife with a pipe. This guy over there, he is a drug dealer. This guy over there, that's just his world. 
And he carries deep hurts, which he covers up by trying to be tough, making fun of any guy who looks in the least bit feminine. It took a while, but we began to form a relationship. He began to open up, talk to me about his life. One time he told me about his mother abandoning him. Told me about his sisters, about his brother. Now he didn't want to be like that. And he asked me why. What's wrong with me that my mother doesn't love me? What's wrong with me that my dad never talks to me? Slaughters beef all day at the Tyson plant and comes home and totally disconnected. And I remember looking him in the eye and saying, Nason, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And he just wept and held on to me, this kid who wanted so bad to be tough. He told me about breaking into a neighbor's house and stealing a Nintendo. I just, I love that kid, but I'm telling you, I can't just plug him into the children's ministry at church and say, got one. After we moved away, I lost contact with him because sometimes they had a telephone and sometimes they didn't. And just one day the phone didn't get picked up anymore. And then I got a weird sound at the end of the line. They got another phone that was a different number. Call the school. Social worker wouldn't give me his contact information because they're not allowed to do that, protecting him from me. And I'm just praying that there's somebody back in Amarillo, Texas that knows Jesus, that's loving on Nason. You know how many thousands of Nasons there are? You can't wait on the church to schedule a program to make that happen. And there's nothing stopping you. I was getting on a shuttle bus oh, a year or so ago. I was preaching somewhere. I don't remember where. I got and drove over to DFW and parked at the parking spot. And shuttle bus pulls up. And I get on with my suitcase. Saturday night, going to preach the next morning. And there's nobody on the shuttle bus. And the guy who's standing there in the door to grab my suitcase that I don't want to give him because I don't want to have to tip... Uh, I'm cheap, okay? He's got a name tag that says desire. Really? I'm guessing that's not a verb. How do you say that, you know? And he speaks with an accent that sounds kind of French and indigenous African. And so I said, I'm Dan. What's your name? He says, Desiree. I said, ah, French. I said, oh, okay. And we get to talking. Where are you from? Bujambura. You know where Burundi is? And he's expecting me to say, no, where is that? I said, yeah, I was in Kigali, Rwanda last year. <gasps> you went to Kigali? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just a few miles away from your hometown. Oh, we speak the same language. These are my people. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I said, uh, we came really close to Burundi. I have a lot of friends over there. We work with a group that plants churches over there. Oh, I was so excited. I asked, what are you doing here? Well, you know, his family had gone through the same genocide. His parents had been killed. And he came over seeking asylum, trying to live in a safer place. Guy's been to the University of Bujumbura, graduated. He's driving a shuttle bus at the parking spot because his English isn't very good. We pull up. We've got about 10 minutes. Pull up to the terminal. i got to go because, you know, I can't talk to you. i got to go serve the Lord and work for the church. And um, so I gave him a business card. I gave him a tip, a really good one, by the way. I said, give me a call. 
or email me because I want to hear your story. Never expected to hear from him again. I do this kind of stuff a lot. You don't usually hear. Monday morning, I get an email from him. His house or his apartment, two miles from my office. I work with a guy who lived in Rwanda for four years. They speak the same language. I said, would you, would you meet with us and just come tell us your story? He drove up, came up to our office, and told us the story of watching his mother being hacked to death with a machete. Shows us the big scar on his arm where he was hit with a machete where he was able to flee and hide and eventually get asylum. He believes in God, doesn't really have any connection to a church, doesn't really know what it would mean to follow Jesus you know, we start a Bible study, he starts coming to church with us. He's become a dear, dear friend. But he doesn't really fit in my church. He can go, people are nice to him. I don't really fit there. Can't just dump him off there. His brother gets in a car wreck and it's not really safe and there's no place for him to show up. He can't go for medical treatment there. So he quits his job, flies back to Burundi and gets his brother over into the next country, Rwanda, to Kigali to get medical treatment. And before he does, he comes to us and he brings his wife and he says, can you help look after her while I'm gone and my four boys? And I'm like, okay. I'm like, do you have any family or friends around here any who can help out? He said, yes, you. So I said, okay. <laughs> it goes. So we made sure they had food. We made sure bills got paid. We, you know, the group that I work with, we been pouring into his life for several years, trying to form a group of immigrant African spiritual community. To, because how do you nurture church? It's kind of demanding. Love the guy. I was needing some computer work done, just trying to find a place where I could get something fixed and on an old computer and Googled something, found a place that was right across the, the freeway. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll go over there. And this was the week before the Super Bowl. I walk in. There's a guy working there. I, he, I can tell he's kind of Middle Eastern looking. And we have two or three exchanges. I'm in there two or three times. Finally, the third time I'm in there, I'm getting ready to pay out. There's nobody else in there. I'm just the two of us. Talk to him. I say, hey, where are you from? Afghanistan. I said, really? Afghanistan? Wow. How long have you been in the country? Since November, so two months. Really? How did you get a visa into the United States from Afghanistan? Well, I was a translator for the English arm, for the Army. It's, did English translation. Really? Wow. I said, so how have you found America? Are people nice to you here? He said, no. When they find out I'm from Afghanistan and my name is Muhammad, they do not like me. This is a man who put his life on the line going out on missions with the U.S. Army and can never live in his country again and left a wife and his family behind because it will never be safe for him in that country. He's going to spend a year trying to get his wife over here. People are not nice to him because his name is Muhammad. I said, man, I'm so sorry. I said, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I just want you to know you are welcome in this country. And I said, I want to be your friend. I don't really have any Muslim friends. And I said, I would really like to have a Muslim friend. And if you could help me understand your people, I'd try to help you understand my people. But Jesus loves you. You're welcome in this country. And he made said, you are my first American friend. I took him to eat Mexican food the other day. He loves guacamole, does not like refried beans. <laughs> the rice is okay. Enchiladas, he'll eat the chicken out of them, but not that stuff. You know, he'd never been to a restaurant before. 
I don't know where that's going, but I know this. He's never going to come to church, but somebody who loves Jesus might transform his life. They're everywhere, people. They are absolutely everywhere. And some of them even look like you. They're in your neighborhoods. They're in your office buildings. They're on the bus with you. They're everywhere you go. Names and stories. This is our mission. Can you see them? Do you see the people? Or are you just so conditioned to our culture that you see tools and landscape? Do you see the story behind the waitress who puts the food down in front of you and cleans up after you? Do you ever wonder why somebody of her age is working in this job? you ever ask her about her kids? you ever intentionally eat in the same restaurant over and over again and try to sit in the same spot so you can form a relationship with somebody? you ever tip graciously, intentionally, just so you can build trust with somebody? What about your mechanic? What about the person that checks you out at Walmart? you ever go to wait in the same line so you can build a relationship with a person over time? Ask them how they're feeling. Ask them how people are treating them. Because you know people who check you out at Walmart feel like a machine and get treated like a machine by everybody all day long. What about the person who delivers your mail? What about the person who cuts your hair? There is no more critical spiritual discipline we need today in our task-oriented, depersonalized world than cultivating the ability to see people and realize following Jesus is very simply about loving people. Every congregation is going to pass away, but every disciple of Jesus will live forever. So let's focus our attention Let's focus on our energy, on what can endure to be part of that new heaven and new earth. Please pray with me. Father, we just pray that you open our eyes to see people, to love people, to invest in those lives, whether their names seem foreign to us or familiar, no matter where they come from to just be looking for those people that you're creating opportunities for us to serve and love in your name, introduce them to you, pour into their lives, disciple them as we seek that you disciple us. Help us to see this as our primary mission in life, starting in our own home. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Dan. People with stories. What's your story this week? I've uh, visited with some folks this week, and there seems to be commonality. Uh, At least the folks I've run into up here is uh, there are challenges in life. And a lot of us are tired. To all of that, the people in this room, the people out, the people with stories. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest.
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. <laughs>